What's up, guys? So, uh, today we got a special episode. Um, I'm actually here with Rabbi Hanan uh, Schlesinger. He is a he is the co-founder of an organization called Roots, um, which is a peace-building initiative between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, Hanan, take it away. Okay, thanks, Avi, for having me. And hello to all the listeners, wherever you may be. Let's do an exercise. Before I introduce myself, before I introduce myself, I'm going to take everyone on a plane ride to the other side of the ocean. Uh, we're going to spend, I guess, 10, 11, 12 hours in the Elal plane, and now we're landing. We're landing in Ben Gurion Airport near Tel Aviv, Israel. We go through customs, get on a bus. We are on a bus in the direction of Jerusalem. We're going uh, east to Jerusalem, up in the Judean hills. It's really exciting. And then when we get to Jerusalem, the bus turns to the right. In other words, turns down south. We're traveling to the area called Gush Etzion, the Etzion block. We're traveling there about half an hour. And then the bus stops. It doesn't stop in a city, doesn't stop in a settlement, doesn't stop in a town or a village. We're in the middle of nowhere. Actually, we're on the main road. It's called Route 60. It goes from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Hebron and then down to Beersheba, but it's farmland. It's actually Palestinian farmland. It may be to you guys even a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we see they were going in a gate, a sliding metal gate into a farm compound, a farming compound that's surrounded by a stone fence. We get in there. There's a few trees. There's a hothouse growing uh, vegetables, fruit trees. And we see a classroom, we see a bathroom, we see a place to sit outside, uh, a patio under an awning, there's a kitchen. We sit down and we are now in one of the most amazing places. I'll tell you, the place is called the West Bank, or it's called Judea and Samaria, or it's called Occupied Territory, or Liberated Territory, or Greater Israel, Disputed Territory, or Palestine. Lots of different names to this place. Some call it over the green line. It's an area that's administered by Israel, but it's not part of Israel, not part formally of Israel, over the green line. And we are now in the only joint Israeli-Palestinian community center, community center in the whole West Bank, in the whole Judean Samaria. This is places called the Dignity Center. And it's the only, literally the only piece of ground where Israelis and Palestinians can come to meet each other in dignity, in equality, and a sense of acceptance without fear and safety. Now, I have to give background. Why is there only one such place? Why is it so out of the ordinary? So here in Judean Samaria, slash Palestine, slash the West Bank, the two sides, Israelis and Palestinians, would live right next to each other, but completely separately completely separately with no contact at all. Listen to this. We Israelis and we Palestinians live in separate towns and villages. We have different legal systems. I, as an Israeli, live under Israeli law. The Palestinian lives live under military occupation, military law. I'm a citizen of Israel. They're a citizen of no country. We have different municipalities. We have different school systems, different economic systems, different transportation systems. We have even different calendars. These kids are off from school different days of the week, different months. Uh, people go to work different days of the week, different months. 
We have different media, radio, television, newspaper, the news that the Palestinians hear, and the news that I hear in Isra as an Israeli, completely, completely different. We even live in different time zones, because sometimes the Israelis and the Palestinians switch to and from daylight savings time different, at different days. You look at the watch, it's different time. Even we drive on some different roads. Some of the roads are common, but many of them are separate just for them, just for us. Now, when you have Israelis and Palestinians who live so close to each other geographically, but so far away in every other sense, so you have ignorance of the other on both sides. You have suspicion. You have stereotypes. You have bigotry. You have the craziest ideas that each side has about the other. And you also have fear. There's a lot of violence here. The thing is that Israelis only know about the violence that the Palestinians do to us, but not about the violence that we do to them. And the Palestinians only know the violence that Israelis do to them, but not the violence that they do to us. So each side is pretty convinced the other side is dangerous, the other side is primitive, the other side is violent, the other side are terrorists. And that fear actually is part of our identity. That fear is passed on from generation to generation, becomes inherited trauma. Yeah, uh, Nan, to your yeah. point about the fear, like, you know, I remember growing up in the States, and I've only been to Israel twice, but my father's from there, my grandparents, um, both my, on my father's side, my um, grandfather and grandmother are Mizrahi Jews from uh, Iran and Iraq, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, like, we heard stories of, like, how they fled, and, you know, we really, like, that fear of, like, the other side is kind of, yeah, we don't want to admit it but it's in many ways like it is a kind of a part of our identity like yeah these are this is what the other side did to us you know and um yeah i mean listen like we weren't taught to hate like we weren't taught to not want peace like when the uae israel peace deal happened like everyone was excited my family but there's also that sense of fear like that sense of we need to absolutely defend ourselves and in many cases we do but at the same time there is this huge sense of fear so like i definitely agree with that fear and suspicion is a yeah. situation of israeli jews who live within the green line within israel proper and what i'm talking about is a situation over the green line which is the same thing only worse only deeper only stronger uh so indeed so so in any case uh were there to be theoretically an Israeli Jew living where I live, over the green line in Gush Etzion, and the Palestinian, local Palestinian, who wanted to get together for a cup of coffee. There's no such thing. But had there been such a thing, there'd literally be no place for the both of them to have a cup of coffee together. A place where they could both feel safe and accepted. Because every single piece of ground around here in the West Bank slash Judean Samaria is either theirs or ours. If we're talking about Israeli places, Israeli settlements, Israeli cities, Palestinians are forbidden from entering by military law. They can't do it unless they have a work permit. And if we're talking about Palestinian towns and villages uh, and cities in the West Bank, Israelis can't enter. It's forbidden by Israeli military law. So there's no place to sit. Now, there are a few Israeli shopping centers, only a few, that are outside of Israeli cities and villages and settlements in the West Bank, but even there, although technically Palestinians can sit in the coffee shop, they're afraid. They're afraid. It's not their place. It's not their territory. And we created the Dignity Center. 
It's the only Israeli-Palestinian joint community center in the whole West Bank slash regime scenario. And in this place, the two sides can and do sit together. Before the pandemic, we're sitting together every single day. It's an amazing thing. It's called the Dignity Center. As I said earlier, the Dignity Center was created by the organization that I helped to co-found six years ago, Roots in Hebrew Shorashim and Arabic Judor, the Israeli-Palestinian Grassroots Initiative for Understanding Nonviolence and Transformation. And this is a place where we have formal and informal activities. Uh, we have an open house once a month, again, before the pandemic. Palestinians and Israelis just come and show up and drink coffee and play music and talk. Sometimes we have formal events. We have three different interfaith dialogue groups. We have a play group for little elementary school kids twice a month. We have a youth movement for Israeli and Palestinian high school kids. We have women's programs. We have a trauma therapy program. We have music therapy. We have three different, uh, we have summer camps. We have day camps. Uh, so many things going on. And what happens is the two sides come suspiciously they may sit on other sides of the room, opposite sides of the room. They're afraid of each other. We begin to break the ice with conversations with the facilitator and people talk, they listen, and they begin to understand that there's a real human being on the other side. And it is literally surprising to discover that. People are taken aback when they see someone just like, just like them. I often say, that Israelis and Palestinians are sick. Sick with a disease that I call the hubris of exclusivity. The hubris of exclusivity. Which means that each side thinks that my side is the only true people around here. Only we are really connected to the land. Only we belong and the other is a fake people. And then you meet the other side and you begin to first see a human being. And second, after deep conversation, you begin to see that they also have a story. They have a national history. They're connected to the land just like I am. They have aspirations for the future. And we begin to heal a little bit, slowly, from the hubris of exclusivity and begin to see that the other side is just as real and just as legitimate as, as we are. So that's my introduction to the Dignity Center, where we're now sitting in our imaginary uh, uh, exercise, and to Roots. Now I want to introduce myself. My name is Hanan Schlesinger. I'm a rabbi. I live in Gush Etzion. I've been here for something like uh, 40 years, between Bethlehem and Hebron. And I use three labels to refer to myself. I'm a Jew, I'm a Zionist, and I'm a settler. I'm not going to take three minutes to unpack each of those words. When I say that I'm a Jew, although I'm a re religious Jew, religion is not what I'm talking about when I say I'm a Jew, I'm talking about the Jewish people, I'm talking about peoplehood, I'm talking about a collective identity that goes back 3,000 years. I'm talking about the sense that all Jews are links in a chain of tradition, that I am 63 years old, but in the larger sense, I'm 3,000 years old, that all of Jewish history is part of my sense of who I am. And given that, I remember that when the Jewish people were created 3,000 years ago, when we were born, we were born intrinsically connected to the land of Israel, inseparable. I don't think we can separate it from Jewish identity in the land of Israel. We may not all live in the land, we may have debates about what our connection to the land is, but we all agree that the land is central to our sense of who I am, who we are. After having said that, I go on to 
introduced myself as a Zionist, the second word I used. For me, Zionism is simply a fleshing out of foundational Jewish identity. Now, Zionism, on the one hand, is a political movement. It was born 150 years ago to create a political platform to return the Jewish people to the land of Israel. But in the largest sense, Zionism is nothing more than the way that we're fulfilling Jewish identity. We're coming back home. It's been 2,000 years since the temple was destroyed, the second temple, in the second Jewish Commonwealth, in the year 70 of the Common Era. The Jewish people have been in Northern Africa, and then in Europe, and then in America, and Australia, and all these 2,000 years, we are yearning, hoping, praying, to come home to Jerusalem, to come home to our land. We have had a sense of being in limbo, not being at home, not being able to fully express our identity. And then we began the return home through the Zionist movement. I was born in New York. I wasn't born in Israel. When I was 18, I picked up my two bags and I made Aliyah. I got on the plane and I ascended to the land because I had a sense that my Jewish identity isn't full any place else but in the land. And I, the sense is really, literally coming home. That's myself as a Zionist. And then the third label I used was settler. So when I say settler, I simply mean, mean I'm an Israeli Jew who lives over the Green Line in the West Bank, the land that I call Judean Samaria. And if you ask why I live in the West Bank, Judean Samaria, the answer is history. If I've come home after 2,000 years, I want to live in the central bedroom, let's say, the central room, because although Tel Aviv and Haifa and all the coastal cities are part of the state of Israel and part of the land of Israel, we don't have a lot of history there. The Jewish people were born in what today is called the West Bank. 80% of the Bible is written in what they call the West Bank. That's where you can find Jewish history. That's where you can open up the pages of the Bible and literally walk in the footsteps of whatever prophet or whatever forefather or, or matriarch that you're reading about. That's where you can scratch the ground and come up with patchards that our ancestors left so many years ago. That's where you feel that you're another link, the next link in the chain of tradition. And I call Judean Samaria not to make a political point, but to make a historical point. I call it Judean Samaria because that's what the Jewish people have called it for 2,500 years. Judea being the land south of Jerusalem and Samaria being the land north of Jerusalem. So with that story of my Judaism and my Zionism and my subtlerism, if you want, I have the story of my identity, which for me is powerful and is meaningful. And uh, I couldn't imagine uh, any other circumstances of my life. So there's a few things that like, I want to touch on here. Um, yeah. To your point about like Zionism, you know, Zionism officially started in the late 19th century. But I think that, you know, for us Jews, it really started the day we were actually expelled out of Judea. When, you know, the Romans basically came in and took us out of our indigenous land. A lot of people, like, they'll call like Zionism colonialism or they'll call like the Israeli you know, return home, they'll call that, you know, colonialism. And to me personally, and I don't know if you feel this way, but to me personally, I could see why they can say that. But also, on, I take a little, little bit of offense to that because I identify as indigenous to Israel because that's, like you said, like where our ancestors came from. And I think that for a lot of people, they only think of it as like, a, they only think of it as like a religious thing. Like I was sitting in history class, sophomore year, 
um, and we were learning about, you know, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and all that, and the teacher is like, oh, well, you know, it's the holy land for the Jews, it's like, it's, it's, and I'm like, no, it's not, it's not just a holy land, it's not just a religious thing, it's also a historical, a cultural, and really we are the indigenous people like you know that's how we feel and the same and i'm not saying that you know the palestinians aren't indigenous as well i'm not saying that they don't have a right to live there because they have a right to live there and you know he was going into like why we have a religious connection and i'm like what about the fact that we were expelled three two thousand years ago what about the what about the fact that we identify as indigenous what about the fact that we are our own people and not a part of europe or the middle east like so, I mean, really, like, I feel like people need to understand that we identify as an indigenous people. What is an indigenous people, you know? It's basically people who are from that land, who have a strong connection to that land, and are both culturally and historically connected to that land. We check off all the boxes when it comes to Israel and, yeah, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. So, you know, I'm not, this again, this isn't, this isn't to put down the other side and say they aren't, they don't have, you know, the right to live there, but... You know, all I'm saying is like our people also have that right. We also identify as indigenous, and Hanan, uh, I think you would, you know, concur with that. I'm on the same page as you in everything you said, and actually, a few of the things you said uh, are a hint to what I'm about to say. So, thank you very much for that. Uh, so, no problem. After I uh, presented that, for me, what is a very, very powerful story of personal and collective identity. That's the way I lived for most of my life. And then six and a half years ago, I learned that the stories that I know that make up my identity are only part of the truth. Six and a half years ago, I realized that for most of my life, I had been blind. I hadn't seen the Palestinians who are probably about 80 to 90% of the population in the area where I live. I began to realize six and a half years ago that for me, the Palestinians are something like the gray drab scenery that passes in the background of a movie, but is not part of the plot. They were transparent for me. I was seeing right through them. And what brought me to see that my story, although it's true, is only half of the truth was a number of things. One of the main things that happened to me was a car ride. I had with me in my car two pastors, Protestant pastors from the US, evangelicals, who wanted me to show them how the visions of were coming true and the prediction that the Jewish people will come home after a long exile are indeed uh, bearing fruit in front of our eyes. So I took the pastors around to show them what we've accomplished here in Judean Samaria. I showed them the roads we paved and the buildings we established that we built and the road, the roads, like I said, and the orchards that we planted. And as we're driving, I picked up a hitchhiker. I picked up another hitchhiker. And when the second hitchhiker got out of the car, one of the pastors said to me, Hanan, that was great. You taught us a lesson in Jewish ethics. You picked up hitchhikers. No one does it in Texas. That's beautiful. You know, it's not just me. Around here, we all pick up hitchhikers because we have a common vision. We trust each other. And I said that just like everyone else, I tried to pick up 
everyone who puts out his finger for a ride. And somehow, the moment I finished that sentence, I realized that I was lying. I was lying to my guests and I was lying to myself because I never picked up a Palestinian. So how did I manage? I said to myself, how did I manage to say that I pick up every person? And I realized that either the Palestinians aren't persons for me or I just don't see them. And I said to the pastors, wow, I think I've discovered there's something wrong with me. There's something rotten. And I said to myself that I'm going to fix it. What do I mean fix it? I'm going to find a way to see the Palestinians as if they're really there, as if they exist, as if they're real. And what I had to do, I realized, is to meet them. Now I have a Palestinian village literally, literally, literally 500 meters from my front door. About a 140 people there. But I couldn't just go and knock on the door. I don't have any connections. Who's going to introduce me? What am I going to do? Long story short, uh, I got an invitation to meet Palestinians. It came through Facebook. I won't tell the whole story. But now I had a day and a time and a place to go. I had a map of how to get there. This is January 2014. So I walked through my living room towards the front door and I put my hand on the doorknob and my wife said, where are you going? <clears throat> I told her I'm going to meet Palestinians and she almost fainted. She screamed. She said, you can't do that. They'll kill you. I approached her and I saw the terror in her eyes. She begged me not to go. But I decided I have to do this and I was almost as afraid as she was. I walked out of the house, did not get in the car. I walked. According to the map, I'd get there pretty quickly. It was a 20, 25 minute walk through the fields. And then I walked into the same field where everyone in the audience is now sitting. The same place we came to after we got off the bus, after we got off the airplane, the Dignity Center. But in those days, six and a half years ago, there was no Dignity Center. It was just an empty piece of Palestinian farmland. So I walk in. And I see something that absolutely cannot be. I see 15 Israelis and 15 Palestinians and they're doing the strangest thing. You know what they're doing? They're talking to each other. Now that doesn't happen where we come from. I was astounded. I saw a Palestinian woman who wasn't involved in conversation. Other people were talking in twos and threes and fours. So I walked up to her. She's dressed in brown from head to toe. I can see only her face. An observant Muslim, clearly. And I said, hello, in English. She said hello back to me. We talked about a minute and I said to her, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And she responded to me and she said, I can't believe I'm talking to you because we don't talk to settlers. But we didn't stop talking. We talked another minute or two and then her son came over. So she told me his name is Yazin and he's 17 years old. We shake hands, Yazin and I, and I see he's wearing a windbreaker. And on the windbreaker are three words in English, seeds of peace. Have you ever heard of Seeds of Peace? I've never heard of it, but I'm sure it means... That you never heard of it, because I also never heard of it. And I assume most of the people who are listening never heard of it. So I said to myself, Seeds of Peace? Palestinian? You crazy Palestinians don't know anything about peace. I was pretty certain that he found a jacket on the floor. And if I asked him what Seeds of Peace, he said, I don't know. Palestinian wouldn't wear a jacket that says the word peace on it, if they knew what it meant. So 
Jokingly, I said to Yajin, what's this Seeds of Peace thing? And he told me it's a summer camp in Maine, USA. He said it takes Palestinian kids and Israeli kids out of the conflict zone for a summer of recreation and reconciliation. He said he just got back from the camp a few months ago, had a great time. He now has friends on Facebook who are Israelis, he corresponds with them. He told me he was so transformed by the summer that now he wants to spend some of his life with these bridges of reconciliation between our two peoples. And I'm listening to Yazin, and I don't know if I can believe what he's saying. Because it flies in the face of everything that I think is true. He really, really began to confuse me, Yazin. And then his father came over. Jamal, we shake hands. Jamal tells me that he's from Beit Umar. I hear Jamal say those words, Beit Umar, and I almost have a heart attack. Because I know Beit Umar. It's a big Palestinian town of 20,000 Palestinians, just a six-minute drive from my house. And I've had rocks thrown at me when I passed on the road past Beit Umar. And I once had, uh, in the middle of the night, I passed by there, and there was a maksom. There was a rock, a barrier in the road. I had to get out and clear the rocks, afraid I'm being ambushed. Thank God nothing happened, but I'm afraid of the people of Beit Umar. They're terrorists. And now I'm meeting someone from Beit Umar. That was challenging. And then he starts telling me the story of his life. And I'm going to tell you two little anecdotes that Jamal told me. One of them is this. He said, Hanan, you know, there's no Israelis, there's no Jews in Beit Umar. There's only Palestinians, Muslims and Christians. And we don't have any Jews there. The only Jews we know are the Israeli soldiers who guard the entrance to the village and prevent us from going in and out. We hate them. We hate them with a passion because we hate the soldiers and they're the only Jews we know. We hate all of you. And he told me no one in his right mind in Beit Umar would ever want to meet socially an Israeli or a Jew. Except for his neighbor, Jamal said. He said long ago we had this neighbor who came up to him one day and said, Jamal, I'm going to Jericho, to the city of Jericho for interfaith dialogue between Muslims and Jews. Come along with me. And Jamal told me, and he said, Hanan, I told my friend I'll never ever come with you that's only for the weak people and the traitors. Good Palestinians don't need Jews. Jamal refused to go. And a while later, his friend told him, Jamal, I'm going again, come with me. And Jamal said, no. But the third time that his friend tried and convinced him, or the fourth time, Jamal decided to tag along. And he went. And he told me, Jamal said, we sat Jews and Muslims in a big room in Jericho, in a circle, and talked. But I, Jamal, didn't participate. I sat in the corner and I listened. And at one point, this is Jamal telling me, one of the Israeli Jews got up from the circle and looked at me, Jamal said. He started to walk towards me. I was really afraid. He came right up to me and he forced me to shake his hand. He asked me questions. I had to answer his question. We got into a conversation which was very, very uncomfortable. And when this Jewish guy finally left, I, Jamal, wiped the sweat off my brow and I ran to the bathroom to wash the filth off my hand and I vowed I'd never come back to this terrible place again. Jamal went home, he told me, told his wife, she agreed with a terrible mistake he made going there. We should never tell anyone and never go back, of course. But Jamal's friend kept trying to convince him to go back and he didn't want to, he refused, but eventually he went back and then next time he went with his wife and then they brought their children and then Jamal stops the story and tells me, Hanan, where I thought there was only an enemy, 
I discovered a human being who turned out to be a partner, and that changed me. And Jamal tells me the story, and I am completely confused. How could it be? Muslims from the Umar talking to Jews, becoming peacemakers, that's impossible. And as I'm getting more and more confused, Jamal tells me another story. He says, Hanan, you know that the little kids in Beit Umar, whether five years old or seven years old, eight years old, were they to see someone who looks like you, they start to cry. He said, Jamal, why did they start to cry? And Jamal was confused by the fact that I didn't understand why Palestinian kids cry when they look at someone like me. In front of Jamal, he says, Hanan, you don't get it. It's the kippah, it's the yarmulke you have in your head. And it's the long beard. And it's the tzitzit, those fringes hanging from your pants, because all the people who are just like you, they also carry submachine guns. And they come into Beit Umar and they kill the kids. There was a moment of absolute silence. I didn't know what to say to Jamal. I thought this is borderline anti-Semitic. What a libel he's, he's spreading. I didn't know what to say, I just looked at him. And then somehow I understood that although I wanted to tell him how wrong and terrible things he was saying were, I realized that my role at that moment was just to listen, to try and understand how he interprets, how he perceives me. And I said to myself, this is a moment of blessing. For the first time in my life, I'm able to put myself to be in the shoes of the Palestinian and see myself through his eyes. So I just well, looked at him silently, and then I suddenly got it. I realized that, yeah. My neighbors, who look so different than the Palestinians, my neighbors, many of them carry guns because they're afraid of the Palestinians. And that must be so frightening to the Palestinians. So without really understanding what I was saying, I said, Jamal, what do you want? We carry guns because you're afraid of you. And they said, Kanan, that's ridiculous. You're not afraid of us. We're afraid of you. And that was a moment of enlightenment. I was confused, but I was enlightened. They're afraid of us? Why? Yes, I understand, but I don't understand. I began to lose my sense of standing on, on solid ground. I began to see that there's a whole nother way of looking at the relationship with the Palestinians that I hadn't thought of. And then my confusion got even worse when we later sat in a big circle, the Palestinians and Israelis, and Ali Abu Awad, who was the owner of the land we were sitting on and the convener of the event, together with Israeli conveners, Ali said in perfect Hebrew, Hello everyone, thank you for coming to my family's land. I'm Ali Abawad from a proud Palestinian family. We originate in Kubeba, which you Israelis today call Lachish or Kiryat Gat. In 1948, the Israelis came and we had a league. We came here to the West Bank to Beit Umar. Since 1967, when the Israelis came again, we've been living under the rigors and the justice of the Israeli occupation and Wait a second, what did he say? Israeli occupation? It was the first time in my life that I'd had a human being standing in front of me say those two words. Now, I'd read in the paper and heard on the radio about the European Union and the UN condemning the Israeli occupation, but I didn't really know what it was. I'd never seen it before. This Ali Abawat guy is telling me there's such a thing and he lives under it. What is he talking about? Because when I drive in the roads of Samaria, when I walk through the fields of Judea, I don't see occupation. I see the return of the Jewish people to our ancient homeland after 2,000 years of exile. 
what could be more righteous than that? And suddenly, I hear from Ali Abawad that our Jewish righteousness is his nation's suffering. And our Jewish triumph is his nation's tragedy. And he tells terrible stories about what the Israeli army did to him, did to his mother, did to his father, did to his brother, to his whole family. He said he was sentenced to 10 years in Israeli jail and never told the charges. He said his mother was sentenced to six years in Israeli jail for political activity, not for anything violent. And he didn't say these things in order to, to make a political point. He was simply and calmly telling the story of his life so he can know who he is. And I was so enraged. I was so confused. I was angry. I didn't know what was happening to me. How can I let this guy say these things? And I went home that day and I thought, and I thought another day, and I paced back and forth in my study, and I remember feeling so nauseous, as if I have to bend down and pick up my stomach because it's coming out of me. They say this is Palestine, but I say this is Israel. I say we're here justly, and they say we're here unjustly. I realized that I really hadn't gone ever deeply into the matter of where I'm living. I realized I know only half of the story and I decided to come back and meet Ali again and again and again and Ali and I sat together for perhaps hundreds of hours it wasn't just us other Palestinians gathered around and other Israelis gathered around local Israelis and local Palestinians and we talked for months until we founded Roots and I want to tell you that when we first got together, it was so difficult. It was so difficult. We wanted to yell and scream at each other. We were telling completely opposing stories, but somehow we came to the conclusion unconsciously that what we have to do is not yell and scream and not prove that we're right and you're wrong. We just have to tell our story and listen when you tell your story. Now, when the Palestinians tell their story that this is Palestine, that the Israelis came, colonialists, and occupied them. It's like a dagger to our hearts. But we listened. And then we told our story. Our story of coming home to Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel. Of coming home after 2,000 years of, Israel, of exile, of coming home to our land. And for us to say to the Palestinians that we Jews have come home was like a dagger to their hearts. So we just kept listening to each other. Until at one point, Ali said to me, Hanan, it looks like we have to find a way to fit two truths into one heart. Two truths into one heart and into one land. And that's when we founded Roots, the Israeli-Palestinian grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. And since then, we've been talking with greater and greater numbers of Israelis and Palestinians. We've had the development of the Dignity Center that I talked about, uh, more and more activities, more and more activities, more and more understanding of each other. What we're doing is expanding identity, going beyond what I called earlier the hubris of exclusivity. I want to talk a little bit about what the spiritual and psychological feeling is. You see, it turns out that Israelis and Palestinians both build their identities upon the nullification of the other side's identity says we belong and you don't belong the palestinians say this is true the palestinians really believe that judaism is a religion it's not a people
It's a religion. It's a faith. And a faith, as they understand it, doesn't require land. You can be anywhere and believe in your God, believe in the Torah. So they say, why did you come and take our land? Why did you come and colonize, colonize us? We've been here, they say, for 2,000 years. Go back to Russia. Go back to New York. That's what they say about us. And what do we say about them? All my neighbors say Palestinian. There's no such thing as Palestinian. There's never been a Palestinian state. They're just Arabs. Go back to Lebanon. Go back to Syria. Go back to Jordan. And each side is not willing to listen to the other side's understanding of who they are. And in Roots, we said, and we keep saying, that we belong here, we're true and legitimate, but the other side, it turns out, is also real, it's also legitimate, they also belong here. Like Ali said, we have to fit two truths into one heart, we have to expand identity. Now, the way we do this is not by nullifying our particular Jewish or Zionist or Israeli identity. The Palestinians don't nullify their Palestinian nationalism or their Muslim identity or their Christian identity. We don't create a universalist identity. It's not the way of many peace groups, what are called leftist peace groups, that try to go beyond the particularism to come together on the basis of humanity, just humanity. No. We're strong Israeli Jew Zionists, they're strong Palestinian nationalists, Muslims and Christians, but we say you, you have you can be who you are, you must be who you are, but not exclusively, not by nullifying the other. That our identity belongs in the land and yours does as well. And we've come to a place of saying the whole land, the whole land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea is Israel, and the whole same land is also Palestine. Those are both true at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And we have to find a way to live together. Now, I'll say just a very small number of things at the end, which is the following. We in Roots are not political. We're a people-to-people -people grassroots organization. But that doesn't believe that in our mind, politics is unimportant. The opposite. We say politics is of supreme importance because we recognize that the present political constellation which the Palestinian lives with, live without rights, without human rights, without civil rights. And each side lives in fear of the other. And Palestinians are trying to kill us in some cases. That situation is bad. It's immoral. It's illegal and has to be changed. And only a political accord, a fair, just political accord will solve the problem. But we say in roots that the people, Israelis and Palestinians both, are not ready for a political accord because this conflict is not just over borders and resources and security it's over identity who are we and who are they what land is this is it israel or is it palestine and a political uh agreement between the leaders of the two sides won't solve anything it'll blow up in our faces just like also blow up in our faces we have to also prior to the political agreement we have to come to an understanding of each other on the religious the social uh, uh, and the psychological level. We have to deal with our identities. Now, the people in Roots, as I hinted, are Israeli religious Jews, mostly, and the Palestinian side, religious Muslims and Christians. And we're taking those two identities that were basically marginalized by the peace movement and by us until now, and we're bringing it together and we're saying, we can and we do recognize and respect and legitimize the other side and that human understanding is the groundwork is the human groundwork for any future peace accord i'm speechless you know that that's honestly amazing um
you know, uh, what really kind of stuck out to me, and I think like most of my Jewish and Israeli listeners uh, would agree with this, what really kind of stuck out to me was the story about, you know, the IDF soldiers and um, them being portrayed as like these vicious monsters. Because our whole lives, like we were taught that, you know, these guys are the heroes. And in many ways they are for us, you know, they are defending our people, our state. Um, but listen, I have family that served in the army and we're very proud of our, we're very proud of the service. I have, um, friends who are, you know, in the IDF right now, like, um, that I worked with a couple of years back in the States. So, I mean, for me, it's like very confusing. Like what is actually going on there? And you're always going to hear the Israelis say that it's like, you know, this amazing force that's protecting them. And they're the most moral, like I've always, I've heard they're the most moral army in the world. Then you also right. turn around and you see people saying that they're evil, they're killers. It's so confusing. And I feel like, and I was actually looking at um, your guys, I was looking at your website, uh, Roots, you know, friendsofroots.org. You guys can go definitely go check them out. Um, and one of the things that you guys do is this thing called pre-army academics. And I wanted to ask you about that. So yeah, uh, can you just elaborate on what that is? Absolutely. Uh, first I'll say, that the issues that you're bringing up are really some of the major points that we talk about. Uh, Palestinians often in roots come to understand that for us Israelis, the IDF is here to protect us and is doing its best to do that under very difficult circumstances and we're proud of serving in the army. And on the other hand, we Israelis come and hear from the Palestinians their stories of daily humiliation at the hands of the army, at the hands of individual soldiers, of being cursed at checkpoints, of being asked to strip naked at checkpoints in front of, of everyone and in the cold, of being thrown into jail without any charges, without a lawyer. And it turns out, and, and we Israelis hear that, and we begin to see that it's also true. And the truth is many of us Israelis who have served in the army have seen our army do such things. We have, how do you call it? We've pushed it back of our consciousness. We try and forget about it. We call it exception, exceptions, which it is in many cases. But the point is that both things are true. In Roots, we always teach that there's more than one truth. The army is here to protect ourselves to protect us and it's necessary and at the same time it also is doing some very very bad and immoral things they're also doing a lot of good things like i know that they were giving aid to syrian refugees like yeah they offered aid to lebanon after the explosion so like i just wanted to put that out there like there's yeah. not like a bad yeah. complex so about really our is. free army program uh israel today i think something like 20 percent of young people who finish high school do not go directly into the army but do a year of what's called study in pre-military academies they're called pre-military academies but they're not military academies they're simply preparation for life some of them focus on jewish studies on zionist studies others focus on history on leadership on physical fitness uh, on general culture of learning about the world uh, these are really wonderful programs and many, many, many of these pre-military academies bring their young people to Roots. What happens when they come to Roots 
is a basic program that they get, and then sometimes they get an add-on. The basic program is this. They have a two or two and a half hour session with one of our Israeli settler activists together with one of our Palestinian activists. And they hear a story similar to what I just told you guys in this broadcast. I'm the Israeli, they also hear the Palestinian story. And for 99% of the young Israelis, it's the first time they've ever met a Palestinian. It's also for 90% the first time they've met a settler. And they're meeting a settler and a Palestinian in the same room at the same time, talking together with the respect and love and empathy. It's mind boggling. And we are certain, we know this from anecdotes, that some of these young people become better, more moral, more humane soldiers because they met a Palestinian for two, two and a half hours. It really affects them. And secondly, the add-on we do, some of these groups meet not only an Israeli and Palestinian activist, but they also spend another hour meeting with Israeli and Palestinian high school kids who are part of the youth, the Roots youth group. And those conversations with their peers, settlers and Palestinians is just like, is also life-changing and really affects them going forward as they become soldiers. I believe they'll be better soldiers after meeting Palestinians. Yeah, I definitely agree. And um, yeah, I think that's honestly the best way because like you really, if you're gonna go into a community, you really have to know like the community. Um, like in America right now, we're having these issues with like police uh, relations within like minority communities. And that's a big issue. Exactly. And a lot of people, you know, they try to blame the IDF for what's going on. And let me just start by saying that the IDF is not responsible for any police brutality that's happening in America. But, you know, I think that one of the solutions that a lot of these people are um, advocating for is to actually have more, like, black cops and to, like, have, you know, police, like, actually get to know the community rather than just being from this kind of separate you know, community somewhere else. Like, they actually need to know and be from and, you know, work with the community and not just, to, like, actually, like, properly defend it without, you know, sacrificing a community relationship or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that's very important, that whole idea of actually having people experience each other. You know, yes. I, I visited Israel twice, and the second time we went, this is what's also interesting. There was... We met a bunch. Of, we met a couple of soldiers, and one of the soldiers was a Bedouin Muslim, and it was like really. He didn't speak any English, but it was really weird to see because, like, oftentimes, you know, you you described like, you know, soldiers harassing like you know Palestinian people, and I'm sure that happens, but at the same time, like, I just find it weird how there's also a Muslim soldier who's like just treated as any other soldier who was like you know friends with like the jewish soldiers and it's it's an amazing thing and it, it just shows you how like complex that is so do you like my question is like do you guys get like the bedouin and the druze soldiers to i know like the druze that are like also mandated to serve along with uh, the jewish people in israel so like do you guys get those soldiers to also come talk with like you know the palestinians in the west bank as well uh not usually. There are very few Bedouin or Druze young people in these pre-military academies, mm. but there are some. There is a pre-military academy for Bedouin young people, 
and uh, I don't remember. It's just Bedouin also, Bedouin together with Jews. But anyway, that uh, academy did come to visit Roots. It comes every year. Yes, and it's just an amazing experience to meet them. And mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's honestly amazing. Um, so another thing that you guys do, and this kind of like, I, I really like enjoyed this. Like they, you guys offer photography lessons. So I'm actually kind of a photographer. Like it's my hobby, I guess. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely do that. Like, how does that actually bring people together? Because, um, yeah, like just tell me like how that brings people together, you know, because like I'm really interested in that. So it's a long story. But about four years ago, I was traveling on a bus in India and I sat next to a woman, a Swiss woman who's living in New York. We got to talk a lot. And by the end of a three hour bus ride, I convinced her, she's a photographer, to spend her summers in Israel, Palestine, doing photography workshops for Roots. So for the past four years now, this woman, Saskia Keeley, who is a uh, humanitarian photographer around the world, she comes and does photography workshops for Palestinian and Israeli women. What happens is that in order, and of course, either you know this, in order to take a good portrait of someone, you have to look at them. You have to look deep into their features. You have to understand the play of their features with the light. And being assigned the project of taking a picture of someone from the other side requires you to look at them. So in this uh, workshop, it's three hours each time for four sessions. Uh, the women are paired Israeli and Palestinian, and they work together taking pictures of the surroundings and of each other. And that's the beginning of looking deeply into the other person's face and the other person's soul. They become close to each other. And our photographer facilitator, Saskia, she's developed uh, uh, methodologies, dialogue methodologies of using pictures they take of each other to begin a conversation, to come close to each other, to begin the process of understanding. It's really, we've had over 120 women have been through these uh, workshops for the past four years. Uh, this summer it was canceled because of the pandemic, but hopefully next summer it will continue. It's, it's really amazing. But it's not just that. We also have another photographer, Bruce Schaefer, from Colorado, from Boulder, Colorado, who now lives, I think, half-time in Jerusalem and half-time back in Boulder. He does photography workshops for elementary school kids in Roots, Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, six kids, seven kids, eight kids, four from this side, four from that side, seven from this side, seven from that side. And the same basic thing. They get to know each other through the camera. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that with photography, especially like the kind of photography I try to do, like when I'm... By the way, like photograph, I find it funny that you mentioned portraits because um, portraits is like one of my, I guess, that's one thing that I'm actually really good at, like, you know, uh, taking a powerful portrait of people. And, you know, lighting is very important, but also having the right facial expression, you know, looking into someone's eyes. And I mean, for me personally, like after I finish a portrait and I edit it and I, you know, like make it whatever it is, there's a sense of emotion that the person betrays so um let's say like i so i think that like you know to show that emotion through art and photography of this correct me if i'm wrong but like they're trying to show emotion about like this conflict right you know like what this conflict has caused on them emotionally like is that what their goal is that's certainly part of it uh, israeli and palestinian women get to take home 
the cameras that we use in the workshop and they're assigned to take pictures of their environment and then to come back to the workshop and show and explain the pictures to the others. And that's a very, very powerful way of showing the other side how my side lives, how we think, how we function. Mm. I, I definitely, yeah, I think that's amazing. Um, and I, I think like one more, and one other thing I wanted to ask you about was, and this is a little bit, um, this might be like a place of pain, but um, do you remember the uh, second Intifada? Like, were you around during that time? Yeah. Because yeah. that, I think that event really changed our perception of, you know, the conflict, right? Like I mentioned, like I had family from Israel, um, you know, they were divided from, you know, that whole conflict, but at the same time, like they would go into, you know, Janine, they would even go into Gaza and they would like buy fruits because it's cheaper over there. They would buy vegetables because it's like cheaper and it's better quality or whatever. And then this was like, obviously before like the infamous wall was built and, you know, do you remember that happening? Like, what was it like? Yeah, actually, uh, my family, we bought our first car. I think it was four months before the uh, the first Intifada. And uh, when we got the car, we indeed went shopping in Bethlehem on the area of Beit Umar. And then suddenly the Intifada started and uh, we were afraid. We didn't go anymore. And of course, the second Intifada, the fear was even greater. Uh, the buses that were bombed and the terror attacks, uh, the second Intifada really uh, cemented the sense that you can't trust the Palestinians, that they're dangerous and terrorist and, and violent. And today we are living uh, with the legacy of the second Intifada. I think that the Palestinians uh, shot themselves in the foot. Uh, they destroyed any trust that existed between Israelis and Palestinians. And now we're trying to rebuild that trust, but it's very, very, very difficult. Mm. Uh, it's really about rebuilding trust through human connection. So I guess like one thing that I also want to ask is like, how is that possible, right? Because as you mentioned, like, you know, like Palestinians can't really go into Israel or they can't really go into the settlements unless they have a permit. Um, for those of you that don't know, like you can get like the, for those of you guys that don't know, you can get like a permit to essentially come on. So it's basically, it's like a work permit, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it's a, yeah, they can basically get a permit to come on, to like come into Israel settlements. Um, and, you know, to my knowledge, like, I remember driving, I, I was actually in the West Bank, uh, just to visit some tourist attractions. And one thing that you'd always see, like, right by a lot of these, uh, Palestinian villages is, you know, you, you can't go in, you see these big red signs, they say, they read in, they're, they're in both English, Hebrew, and Arabic, and they say, like, Israeli citizens and Jews can't go in here. And, um, you know, the Palestinian Authority has uh, repeatedly enforce that law well um, just we mentioned that israel put up the signs not the palestinians israel put up oh really signs. yeah mm. interesting um so but wait wasn't that like a kind of mutual agreement because like i know on the like palace i know like the palestinian authority has like some kind of you know laws that say like you know jews can't enter or just i mean maybe i'm wrong but no no uh, the palestinian authority does not have laws that jews can't enter what happened is that the Oslo Accords, going back 25 years ago, the Oslo Accords uh, based 
the idea of a peace settlement on the concept of separation. Separation. Mm. Them here and us there. And it was mutually agreed that there'd be separate roads, separate settlements, towns, villages. And as part of the Oslo Accords, uh, it was agreed that Israelis wouldn't go into passing areas. That's so Israeli put up those put put up those signs as part of the Oslo Accords. And also, of course, uh, from the point of view of Israel, it doesn't want its citizens there because it doesn't want to have to come and save its citizens. But I have yeah. to add that those signs and the concept of separation in general, in the opinion of myself, in the opinion of Roots, have made it worse. Those signs and that separation has created more suspicion and more distrust. Of course. And Roots is saying, uh, I didn't say this earlier, so now that we're coming near the end, it's good to say it, that Roots believes not in separation, but in partnership and cooperation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no problem, no problem. Yeah, like, I, I definitely agree with that concept. Like, for example, um, you know, the separation wall between, you know, the West Bank and Israel. I understand why it was built, you know, it was a response to suicide bombings, but, I mean, should we really be supporting this at this point? Like, yeah, it's still there for our safety, but at the same time, it's, like, causing a lot of damage where both populations are essentially, like, physically separated. You know, it's it's an and it's an, it's kind of intimidating to see that. You know, whether you're on the Israeli side or the Palestinian side, it's like, oh, this is the wall, and it's it's like right in your face, and it's and I feel like that when that's like right in your face, that's when you get that whole idea of separation. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely true, absolutely true. The, I should add, the Palestinians see the wall as a symbol and reminder of the Israeli occupation. That Israel is denying them freedom of movement. That Israel is oppressing them. The wall is a physical symbol of that. And in that sense, it's done a lot of damage, even though it's also true, like you said, that it's done some good. Yeah. And I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but to a lot of Israelis, and I feel like this is more so like the sentiment of like my family, um, you know, who grew up in Israel and whatnot, they see the wall as like, unnecessary kind of evil where it's like we had no choice but to build it so we don't want, right like they're like we don't want to for them it's like we don't want to send our kids to the army but we feel like we have to we don't want to build this wall but we feel like we have to you know so i feel like that's kind of our perspective kind of i mean you can correct obviously like you're from there you live there you know like so uh, please correct me if i'm wrong but that's kind of what it is, in a way. No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, I don't think that your perspective is wrong. I don't think that the perspective of my neighbors is wrong. But I also don't think that the perspective of my Palestinian friends is wrong. There are multiple perspectives, and they all have truth to them. Of course. Of course. I agree 100%. So, you know, like, what I was trying to ask is, you know, how do you guys actually meet if you guys physically can't meet? Well, our center, the Dignity Center, uh, is in an area that's not Palestinian and not Israeli. It's farmland. And on farmlands, Palestinian farmland, but it's not in a Palestinian village or town. It's not an Israeli settlement. So anyone could go there. Mm. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm guessing that's an area C, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. 
Um, you guys also bring over like Arab Israelis. Like, what's the like? I feel like they're very unique in that they're citizens of Israel and they live in Israel proper, but they're also you know, because I feel like they're, but they're also you know like Palestinian and you know basically Arabs. Yeah, there are many who say that perhaps the Palestinian Israelis could be a bridge between Israeli Jews and the Palestinians of the territories of the West Bank, of Judea and Samaria. But since we're a local initiative, bring together local neighbors, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, we haven't had too many Israeli Arabs as part of our work because they're far, far away. We've Not made yet. field trips to visit them. But I have to tell you that with the onset of the pandemic and with us moving many of our programs from face-to-face -to, -face to Zoom, we've had the opportunity to begin bringing in Palestinian Arabs because it doesn't matter, matter where you are on Zoom. So we have begun to do that. And when we go back to face-to-face -to -face meetings, we'll see what role they'll be able to play. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. So one more thing that I kind of want to ask, and I think we'll wrap it up from here. Uh, by the way, this, is a, this has been a great episode. Um, you know, I, I can't wait. I, we should definitely do a you know, second part. I'm more than open to or more than happy to bring, you know, more of uh, your representatives and activists on to our, you know, show. I think that's really interesting. Um, but you guys on your website, you guys say that you don't want, you want a two-state solution, which is like the buzzword that, you know, all these Western politicians who, you know, in my opinion, never really identified or feel a connection to either side. But you guys say that you want a two-state solution, but you want it to be kind of almost like two states but like everyone it kind of lives together like can you just kind of explain what that means yeah of course so first of all roots doesn't adopt a particular political platform right uh so what you mentioned is not our platform it's rather another movement a different movement that roots has a partnership with we don't say that their approach is the only approach, but we think their approach is very positive and plausible and it reflects our principles. Our principles are cooperation, understanding, human rights, equality, and the program you're talking about, this you're talking about, uh, puts into practice those ideals. So what you're talking about is a movement called A Land for All. A Land for All. It's a joint Israeli-Palestinian political movement and they advocate a plan that's called Two States, One Homeland. Two gotcha. States, One Homeland. And what their plan says is the following. It says there has to be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, but the Israeli state and the Palestinian state, which will have the green line, the 1948-67 border between them, those two states cannot be separate. They have to be connected. How do you connect the two states on three levels? Level number one, open borders. You can go from one side to the other without being checked, without being stopped. Freedom of movement. Number two, open residency. You can live your whole life on the other side of the border. In other words, you can be an Israeli citizen, live your whole life in Palestine without having to get Palestinian citizenship. And you can be a Palestinian, live your whole life in Israel without having to get Israeli citizenship. So number one, like I said, open borders, number two, open residency, number three, confederation. Confederation means a union between two independent sovereign states. Israel is sovereign, Palestine is sovereign, but they also come together in a union with its own uh, parliament, its own prime minister, 
etc. And this is going to be similar to the European Union, that each state is sovereign, but also in partnership with the other, like just like the European Union. And what this plan does, it provides each side with its identity, a piece of the land, a sovereign state, a way to express their national aspirations, but also provides enough of a sense that both sides got the whole land, a whole piece of cake, so that identity is not contradicted. In other words, if we were to go for a classic two-state solution, like also that makes two separate states, no Jews in Palestine, no Palestinians in Israel, that uh, separates Israelis from their identity. Hebron is part of our identity. Beth, uh, yeah. part of our identity. And it separates Palestinians from their identity. Haifa is part of their identity. Yaf is part of their identity. Lut is part of their identity. And that plan, the Oslo plan of separation, created enemies of peace on both sides, who tried to blow it up and succeeded. Whereas the plan we're talking about tries not to create any enemies. It takes identity into uh, account and not just politics into account. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think that's honestly like the, probably the best plan. I mean, listen, I think that the first, I don't think that's the solution. I think that's more so the kind of resolution and I'll get into what, I, and to me, like, I feel like the solution is we stop killing each other. We stop the fighting and we build trust. Like that's the immediate solution. I think we all need to pursue. And this isn't political. This is grassroots, which is one of the reasons why, like, I found you guys so appealing because you guys were grass grassroots. You weren't like, you know, BDS or you weren't APAC. No, like, you were actually just an initiative, not basically an. You weren't just an echo chamber for one side. You were actually like an initiative that encompasses both sides. So, you know, I find that I found that really appealing. But also, like, with that with that plan, like, I, I think that's honestly you know, the best resolution, right? So after everyone kind of, you know, reconciles and, you know, stops killing each other and, you know, really starts to appreciate one another and, you know, they're willing to not live segregated, but rather to live in, you know, two states, but each have their own nationality represented. I think that's honestly the best plan. Yeah. And I mean, one more thing that I want to touch on is Jerusalem, you know, uh, I think that that's also kind of a part of the West Bank. I know East Jerusalem is like technically considered occupied territory, which I mean, to a lot of Jewish people is a little bit of a smack in the face because I mean, the Western Wall, which is like the most holy site is technically considered a settlement. And I mean, to a lot of Jews, like you're calling like our biblical, like Mecca, basically, you're not, no pun intended, but you're calling that like a settlement. Like to us, it's very... It's a little bit defamatory, needless to say. So, uh, do you want to just talk about like what happens, what's happening right now with uh, Jerusalem, and you know, um, what the situation is for Jews and Jews and Palestinians over there? Well, since Roots is not political, and Roots is a local initiative outside of Jerusalem in Gush Etzion between Bethlehem gotcha. and Jerusalem, let me just say that the Land for All program. Again, which is not Roots, but Roots is very connected to them, close to them. The Land for All program uh, says that Jerusalem should be a, uh, how do you call it? A, uh, a city run by both sides, an international city. Hanan, um, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, you know, this has been, you know, truly an enlightening and amazing experience. Um, I guess I'll give you like two minutes, a minute or really how much, 
how really all the time you want to basically just tell us uh, give the audience a message like a final like a last hurrah if you will you know i will divide my final words into two sections the first section is about the overall idea and it's this if you are a strong supporter of israel please remain a strong supporter of israel and if there's anyone listening who's a strong supporter of palestine please remain a strong supporter of palestine and the palestinian people but the whole idea of roots and our request to all those listening is to not support one side at the expense of the other side please support israel and also palestine please support palestine and also israel if you support only one side then you're actually and unintentionally supporting continued conflict we need people american jews american muslims american christians to be strong supporters of israel and strong supporters of palestine at the same time because if one side gets what it wants and the other side doesn't there won't be peace we need for israel and palestine to have your strong support and to get in a future peace settlement as much as possible of their needs and wants and desires both sides have to be satisfied we want the american people and we want the american government to support both sides now that means we suggest and we beg of you to be pro israel and pro palestine at the same time that's the only way to be pro peace that's the first part of my closing words the second part of my closing words is simply look at our website friendsofroots.net don't go to friendsofroots.org it'll bring you to china to buy roots and we're not selling roots we're selling peace friendsofroots.net look at what we have there uh read about our work go deeper into it read the essays read the look at the videos and of course go to the donate page to donate to friends of roots also please go to facebook and look us up there like us give us a like friends of roots on facebook that's really important to follow our work uh and lastly i'll mention that we're now in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign leading up to our first annual roots run for reconciliation run for reconciliation september 13th at 6 p.m. Jerusalem time we are having a group of activists run from Bethlehem passing a number of Palestinian and Israeli towns and cities to the center to the dignity center in the center of Gush Etzion and we're trying to show how close we are together but how separate our place of living are and in which we're bringing the two sides together it'll be on Facebook live from a quarter to 6 until uh 7:15 Jerusalem time on Sunday so we ask you to go to our crowdfunding campaign site it's on Juicer and to support us there uh you might even want to run with us wherever you are around the world or at the same time the same distance you can write me an email to get involved in that uh perhaps Avi can put up the crowdfunding uh I'll put uh, it in the bio URL uh episode yeah i'll put it in the so i'll just say our uh i'll just say my email hanan schlesinger ravhanan.org sorry ravhanan at, at gmail.com r a v h a n a n at gmail.com thanks everyone great being with you